Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Conceiving Agency, Reproducing Authority Among Haredi Women, published by Indiana University Press in 2020, Michal Rauscher explores the ways ultra-Orthodox Jewish women make decisions about their reproductive lives, Although they must contend with interference from doctors, rabbis, and the Israeli government, ultra-Orthodox women in Israel find space for and insist on autonomy from these from them when they make decisions regarding the use of contraceptives, prevent, uh, prenatal testing, fetal ultrasounds, and other reproductive practices. Drawing on their experiences of pregnancy, knowledge of cultural norms of reproduction, and theological beliefs, Rauscher shows that ultra-Orthodox women assert that they are in the best position to make decisions about reproduction. Michal Rauscher is Assistant Professor of Jewish Studies at Rutgers University, and I'm so glad that she's here joining us today. Welcome, Michal. Thank you, Zalman. It's great to be here. It's so good to have you here. So to begin, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to this work. Sure. So, um, I what this book is really the culmination of so many different, both personal and academic experiences and interactions. Um, right before I started college, I had some bizarre medical experiences that um, landed me in the hospital, and I had multiple surgeries, and it it kind of, I had some surgeries right before I turned 18 and some right after. And, you know, there's this kind of magical number of 18 when you can finally give consent for your own medical procedures. And I was, you know, really the doctors and I were, and my parents were really involved in this kind of balancing act of how to treat me as, you know, a full adult patient, um, while still kind of just on the cusp of realizing my own ability to consent. Um, And I went to college right after this. Thank goodness, everything's okay. I've healed. Um, I had wonderful medical care. And um, I went to college and I was kind of grappling with this, these questions about, you know, being a patient and um, what does it mean to be able to make medical decisions? And I started I engaged with those questions in a couple of different ways. I was pre-med for a couple of years thinking maybe I want to be a doctor myself. Um, And um, I was an undergraduate in the joint program with Columbia University and the Jewish Theological Seminary. And I ended up studying religion and science as an undergrad at Columbia. Um, And at the same time, I was steeped in Jewish studies at JTS. I developed this interest in bioethics Um, And I was starting to really engage with some of these questions and to see not just, you know, some of the answers to my own questions, but how many more questions there were out there. 
And I just got really into bioethics and the intersection of religion and bioethics um, specifically. So I um, had a wonderful bioethics internship one summer, um, doing some research for a bioethicist. And then I went and I did a master's degree in bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and there I studied with social scientists who were using the data that they had gained um, you know, through interviews and observations and um, surveys to really expand the ethical discourse and the ethical possibilities. Um, you know, while we were taught the kind of um, traditional way of doing ethics with philosophy and, um, you know, kind of ancient philosophy, and then it's more modern interpretations, as well as kind of your traditional religious texts, and their more modern interpretations of religious texts, there were also at the same time, this, this trend of social scientists kind of commenting on and doing more descriptive stuff about what's going on in the hospitals and who's making decisions and what are the complicated issues for people today. And that's the stuff that just really animated me. I just, I can't describe it other than kind of that's what I was interested in. Um, and so I ended up taking a class on the ethics of reproduction. I wrote a paper that surveyed the field of bioethics and medical humanities um, about men's involvement in decisions regarding genetic testing and termination. Um, and at the time, what was fascinating is you could do uh, a search on PubMed for um, you know, who makes these decisions about genetic testing. And if you searched for men, you'd find there were there was no research about men, how men are involved in the decision making. It's all about how women are making these decisions and what are the ethical issues for women. And I was just still kind of these threads from, you know, four years prior, I was still fascinated with thinking about who's left out of these decisions and who is making these decisions and how do they make these decisions. So, um, I really hoped that in finding out, you know, how these decisions are made, I could expand the way we talk about reproductive ethics and what we consider reproductive ethics. Um, um, and I, because of my background, I was interested in looking at the relationship between religion and reproductive ethics um, in a way that kind of combined all of the different training um, I received. So I started this PhD program at Northwestern University that combined religious studies, religious ethics, and anthropology. Uh, and there I was able to focus on the anthropology of reproduction alongside reproductive ethics. So um, what what I discovered, you know, kind of frustratingly was that um, anthropology, the anthropology of reproduction really overlooked the role of religion um, in reproductive practices, um, while reproductive ethics seemed entirely dominated by religion. Uh, and I just thought there there needed to be some kind of intersection there um, um, and some more balancing of those scales. Uh, I had wonderful advisors that were really critical thinkers in the field, um, and they were challenging a lot of norms and trying to rewrite our discourse in, in their own personal ways. And so they really pushed me to do the same. Um, so, you know, once I finished my coursework and my exams, I set out for Jerusalem. And um, the idea was, initially, the idea was um, to explore how Orthodox Jewish women engage the realities and the challenges of their pregnancy. 
Um, I was focused on a certain tension in Jewish life. I wanted to look at, I was into studying ritual at the time. And so I was thinking about how Judaism lacks formal rituals and laws for marking pregnancy as a significant life event for women. Um, But pregnancy is not only frequent, but formative for many Orthodox Jewish women. Um, There had been a couple of... uh, uh, books that had come that had um, been written by Orthodox Jewish women about pregnancy, kind of guiding women to more um, inventive um, and uh, uh, creative ways of making pregnancy significant. Uh, and um, and at the same time, there are several fears and taboos and um, and popular traditions around pregnancies. So I was really curious how Orthodox women understand their pregnancies. Um, when there's both this kind of this secrecy, um, there's a lacking of formal ritual, there are hope, there's hope, there's fear, all of these things are mixed together. So I really wanted to talk to um, Orthodox Jewish women about this. And the Israeli setting was really important for me, too, because so much of the anthropology of reproduction looks at technological interventions And um, the role of the kind of the way in which technology ends up dictating how women view their pregnancies and the authority of the medical community and, um, you know, the kind of competing epistemologies that interact in the the hospital room. And so Israeli women are bombarded with technological intervention, both kind of before pregnancy and during pregnancy. And so... I really wanted to kind of just basically put all of it into a blender and say, what, what, what is it that's coming out? Um, so that's how I kind of, so that's how I initially got to Jerusalem and what I, my initial questions were. And then once I was there, I connected with some women I had met a few years prior who were uh, Americans who had immigrated to Israel and were involved in um, the Karlbach Moshe, the Shlomo Karlbach and his kind of movement, um, this kind of spiritual Moshe, his his settlement. And um, they would go there every month, and there would be some special women's rituals, and they would talk about pregnancy and talk about babies and these kind of really gender essentialist ways of understanding um, their Jewish identity. And I followed them for a little while, and I was talking to them about the kinds of questions that I was having. Um, And they are the ones who actually connected me to Israeli Haredi women. Um, You know, one, it was basically one of the ultra Orthodox women. Right, the ultra, right, Israeli ultra Orthodox women. Um, They, uh, you know, one of them had a sister in law who was ultra-Orthodox and lived in Meisharim, which is one of the neighborhoods of Jerusalem where a lot of ultra-Orthodox live. And, um, you know, so they said, she said to me, those, my sister-in-law has some really interesting pregnancy experiences. You should talk to her. And um, I did, you know, she connected me um, and I did, and she was right. And that kind of got me started. Um and from that woman, I was connected to, to many more and many more from there. So um, that's how I started learning about what it was like to be um, an ultra-Orthodox um, pregnant woman in Jerusalem. Um, and that's kind of how the connections flowed. 
Right. And and just to step back a second, your book, as you mentioned, is about uh, the experience of ultra-Orthodox women uh, being pregnant and how they, they, they um, perceive it and how they handle it and how this relates to Jewish uh, bioethics. And uh, you talk about the kind of traditional understanding of Jewish bioethics uh, that you find rather uh, limiting or, uh, or constricting and that you are trying to introduce a more expansive uh, notion of what bioethics and Jewish bioethics could be. So could you talk a little bit about that? What is the traditional uh, approach to Jewish bioethics and what are you uh, trying to um, uh, contribute to, to expand this discourse? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, uh, so traditional Jewish bioethics, um, which is probably more than 50 years old at this point, um, is largely made up of um, rabbinic rulings on medical issues. It's not so different from um, what we sometimes call medical halacha or medical Jewish law. Uh, and oftentimes what that means, because, you know, the rabbinic laws from, um, you know, 2000 years ago, um, you know, or 1500 years ago, don't always engage with oftentimes don't engage with the modern medical issues that we have today, there's a lot of kind of extrapolating and um, interpreting um, and guessing. And not that I think certitude is a, a necessary quality in ethics, but um, it, it. I just say it because it comes from a different time when the issues were very different. Um, and there is that's number one, the source of the, the, you know, the source texts come from a very different time. But moreover, the interpretation, what I found was very subjective. Um, and so what I concluded about, you know, the field of Jewish bioethics was that there was a great deal of subjectivity in the way folk contemporary um, scholars were interpreting the ancient texts. And yet they were not um, open about that subjectivity. There was a kind of claim that, um, you know, when when I as a scholar read these Jewish texts from 1500 years ago, I'm deducing the Jewish bioethical position on X. Um, and that was really, that just kind of raised a lot of red flags for me because of the, the training that I was receiving in anthropology, which is so honest and open about the subjectivity of researchers and the embody and the, the positionality that we have um, at going into the field, and yet those textual scholars just kind of ignored that. There was um, and 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 so that was really frustrating for me. Um, and I I um, and and while I was frustrated with that, and um, you know, making critiques also from a feminist perspective, in that you know, and those critiques weren't originated with me. A lot of scholars before me had made those same comments, which is that, you know, the ancient texts are all written by men and the vast majority of Jewish bioethicists and those involved in medical um, Jewish law are also men. Um, and and yet uh, one of the biggest topics in the field of Jewish bioethics is that of reproduction. Um, uh, and so, you know, that kind of 
dissonance was really hard for me also as a feminist scholar um, and sort of like, where are the women in this conversation? Um, And at the same time, while I'm angry about all of this and frustrated by this field that I had begun getting trained in and feeling like there just wasn't a place for me and the type of scholarship that I wanted to bring to the table, um, there were colleagues in Christian bioethics who um, had started publishing on the role of ethnography in ethics. Uh, And they were saying that um, not only does ethnography provide us with um, a kind of um, um, real view of what's going on in hospital rooms, in families making decisions, in, you know, cultural contexts that can help us understand, you know, the role of certain medical treatments or, you know, uh, uh, what it means, you know, um, a research, you know, who in, who is involved in research and why, you know, all of these kinds of um, suspicions about doctors. Ethnography can provide us with those kinds of perspectives that we can't get just by reading ancient texts, they said. So number one, it's important for those, for ethnography to provide us with um, that context, that, you know, Geertsy and thick description kind of thing. But also they said ethnography is more ethical because it involves more voices. And I said the, bi- the big problem, again, which is what I was feeling in Jewish, in Jewish bioethics, is that, you know, Christian bioethics and traditional bioethics had been dominated by a kind of very singular white male reading of white male texts. And that was, you know, so they were critiquing that and they helped give me that language um, to do the same in Jewish bioethics. Um, and so that's that's kind of what was going on in Jewish bioethics. And, you know, Christian bioethics really helped propel the field of religious bioethics forward in that way. And I, I, I hope that I've made some, you know, tiny contribution to doing the same in Jewish bioethics. Um, and the truth is that it, I, I, outside of my influence, there's been a lot of shifting in the field in the last, you know, five to 10 years. Um, a lot of different scholars have gotten involved and are bringing a lot of different methods to the table, which is just really nice. Because um, when we're thinking about ethical discourse, I think we want it to be as wide as possible. Absolutely. And you mentioned that 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 one of the contributions uh, that you seek to add to the discussion of uh, of bioethics and especially Jewish bioethics is the idea of embodiment. Could you tell us how that that uh, plays a role here? Yeah. So, I mean, you mean how it plays a role in in my own work or in bioethics in particular? In, in your own work, how you see uh, the, the centrality of embodiment and its contribution to the topic of, of Jewish bioethics. Sure. So, um, so one of the things that I found in, um, in my research with ultra-Orthodox women is that um, they all make different decisions when it comes to uh, ultrasounds, prenatal testing, uh, pain medication during labor, where they're going to give birth, contraception, all of these things, they're all different. Um, each each From one woman to the next made different decisions about these things. Um, and also sometimes from one pregnancy to the next, they would make different decisions about these things. Um, what was similar instead was the 
um, the way in which they made those decisions. And that method involved a great deal of relying on their embodied experiences of pregnancy. Meaning the women that I spoke to for their first and second pregnancies were kind of um, uh, just shocked to be pregnant, not sure what to expect. Um, They hadn't received a whole lot of education about pregnancy or how they got pregnant. Uh, And there were a lot of people around them telling them what to do. And then by the time they were pregnant for the third time, for most women, it was this transition from the second to third pregnancy, although a few women got it from the first to the second. Um, By the time they were pregnant for for the third time, they started talking a lot more about the fact that these external authorities didn't really have a role to play in how they would make decisions about pregnancy. Then instead, they would rely on the experiences that they had had in previous pregnancies. Um, And that was really um, just a a different way of thinking about how people are making medical decisions. Um, You know, they're not then going to outside authorities. Um, They explicitly reject the authority of books, even pregnancy books, Um, in determining what they should do. They don't want to go to the rabbis in kind of this very explicit rejection of rabbinic authority. Instead, what's authoritative for them is their embodied experiences. So um, kind of the classic example is for many women, they told me their rabbis don't want them to get ultrasounds. And they don't want them to get ultrasounds um, either because, you know, their rabbis believe that Um, uh, what's hidden should remain hidden. And, um, you know, they shouldn't be able to see the the baby, the fetus until it's born. And, um, and, and other women told me their, their rabbis don't want them to get ultrasounds because they think that ultrasounds are just going to be kind of a, a one step towards an abortion. Why would you get an ultrasound if you're not going to get an abortion anyway, which includes a whole lot of assumptions about you know, women and and abortions and things like this. But that's what they told me. And yet a lot of women that I spoke to said, if I want to get an abortion, sorry, if I want to get an ultrasound, I will get an ultrasound because when I get an ultrasound, it calms me. I can see that there's nothing wrong with the baby. I can feel a lot better about whatever pain I was having or discomfort. Um, I can, you know, rest assured that, you know, everything's developing normally and seeing, and, and I know that because that's what happened last time. Last time I followed my doctor and I didn't get any, any ultrasounds and I was nervous the whole time. And then I started getting ultrasounds with this pregnancy, they would say, and now I feel much better. So, you know, that kind of experience, that kind of relying on what happens in one's body um, and, and, and living in one's body as authoritative knowledge uh, is, is what ended up informing their decisions and not those external authorities. Right. And is that what you mean by um, reproductive authority? That you you talk about um, you you talk about a reproductive agency. I'm sorry. Uh, the idea that women uh, ultra women once they have several um, several children already, they develop this sense of reproductive agency that allows them to be more autonomous in their decision making about their pregnancy. 
Yeah. So embodiment is one piece of, of what provides them with reproductive agency. Um, I take agency in, in kind of a, a Saba Mahmoud kind of way in that agency is, is a created space for them. Um, and so what I talk a lot about in the book is these spaces that are created for them to um, make decisions on their own. And the embodied experience really informs um, the decisions that they ultimately make, but there are also a whole lot of spaces for them. So things like um, the fact that pregnancy is such an important role for them within their communities and within the ultra-Orthodox community more broadly, um, they take that as a kind of as, a, as an understanding that they're responsible for pregnancy. They're responsible for the baby that results. Uh, and they take that very seriously. And once that weight is on their shoulders, they see that they should be making those decisions. Um, other things are, you know, the the nature of the relationship that they have with their husbands um, means that they're often making decisions about pregnancy and reproduction without their husbands. So if they're making them without their husbands, they can then kind of more easily cut out the rabbis as well. Um, things like this. There's also the fact that um, ultra-Orthodox women in Israel are the primary breadwinners for their family, so they're more keenly aware of the financial limitations that they have. And um, all of these things end up making space um, for women to really draw on their embodied experiences to inform their reproductive decisions. Right. And uh, one quote from your from your book, you say that the sources of ultra-Orthodox women's, women's oppression are also the sources of their agency, right. that there's this kind of duality. Um, could you speak a little bit about this duality? And um, you mentioned that there are theological beliefs that they end up marshalling in their, uh, um, in their uh, um, expression of their, their autonomy or their uh, this sort of um, freedom that they have when dealing with questions of reproduction. What are some of those theological beliefs and how uh, do these women marshal them? Right, right. So the sources of her oppression, what I mean by that is I'm talking about the, the fact that, you know, they are expected to reproduce. They are expected to have a lot of children. Um, most of the women I spoke to had at least three children, but, um, you know, I spoke to a couple, uh, one that had 18, another that had 14. Um, they, the community has an average birth rate of somewhere, a total fertility rate, somewhere between six and eight children. Uh, so they're expected to have a lot of children. And most people, when they think about ultra-Orthodox women, think of them as kind of, quote unquote, just baby making machines. Um, you know, they see pregnancy and reproduction as a source of oppression for ultra-Orthodox women, a source of kind of keeping them inscribed in certain gender roles. Uh, and what I found instead is that women draw on these roles, and it's through the enactment of pregnancy and reproduction that they can exert authority. And, and one of the ways that we see that is with these theological uh, beliefs that you asked about. So um, one is the idea that um, women are a clea or a vessel for, for God basically. And, you know, there is a way of seeing that, which is women are just a vessel for God. 
But the other way of seeing that is actually the way that the ultra-Orthodox women I spoke to see it, which is that they are a direct vessel for God, that they, during pregnancy, create a direct connection to God. And in that way, they're able to bypass their rabbis. So whereas during normal, normal ultra-Orthodox life, they, um, you know, they have to go to their rabbis for everything, for every question that they have, uh, and they're expected to. Whereas during pregnancy, uh, their rabbis, you know, during pregnancy, because of these theological beliefs, women have a direct connection to God and the rabbis are just unnecessary. Uh, And that's part of the theological understanding within Haredi Judaism, not that the rabbis are unnecessary, but that women have a direct connection to God during pregnancy. Uh, women spoke to me a, a, about the sadness they experience at birth uh, because the moment that the, the the umbilical cord is severed is understood to be the moment where their direct line to God is severed. And um, they took, they listened to these pregnancy cassette tapes, these classes that I listened to as well, where uh, the um, the umbilical cord is likened to a cord that directly connects to God. And um, so that really helps them kind of um, draw these direct connections, both in this very embodied way and a more theological way. It's an embodied theology in that way. Uh, and it, it um, you know, that's one of the ways in which what I argue is when they are exerting that authority, when they are claiming that authority over pregnancy, they're not doing it in a way that completely challenges ultra-Orthodox norms in Judaism. They're challenging a certain a certain authority structure, but they're reinforcing the importance of reproduction. They're reinforcing the connection they have with God. They're supporting all those things, and they're able to find space again for their authority within those theological concepts. Right. And um, uh, I, I'm curious if the women themselves, <clears throat> the women that you interacted with, uh, did they acknowledge this reproductive agency? Did they acknowledge that they actually have at least a limited sphere of autonomy within the larger system of ultra-Orthodox laws and norms? Yeah. So um, so they don't use the words. They didn't use agency or autonomy. They talk about knowledge. They talk about experience. Um, uh and they do acknowledge and they talk very openly. And a lot of the doulas that I spoke to really try to get women to re- embrace this idea that they don't need to go to the rabbis for everything. And they know this. I, the women I spoke to know this and they talked to me about this very explicitly. This sense of my rabbi has never been pregnant. I've been pregnant three, four, five, six times, uh, you know, And also, you know, the other kind of side of it that they're struggling with is their relationship with the doctors. So, you know, they're also kind of harnessing this authority when they go in to interact with their doctors and, you know, they want to make decisions about how to give birth and their doctors might be pushing a C-section and they don't want a C-section, a cesarean section, and they don't want a C-section. So, you know, they're also kind of struggling with, with the 
authority that the medical profession is presenting to them, um, and they have to claim a different kind of authority there also. So yeah, they talk very explicitly about needing to push back and um, they having the um, the knowledge to make these decisions, the experience that allows them to make these decisions and the connection to God. They talk about this connection to God very explicitly, and that's what allows them to make these decisions. And in the kind of hierarchy of ultra-Orthodox life, you know, just above the rabbis is God. And so I'm being only a little sarcastic, but, you know, um, so at least if they're claiming God, then they're, they've, you know, covered their bases kind of thing. Right. And um, we talked a little bit about some of the theological beliefs. You also talk about the prevalence of segulas, of kind of charms or certain kind of folk uh, rituals or practices that a lot of these women engage in in order to, to, to become pregnant, in order to protect the pregnancy or ensure uh, a healthy baby. Uh, could you speak a little bit about what some of these um, charms are and uh, uh, and if you could talk about the pomegranate juice and how you sort of got roped in uh, to at least one of these charms. Yeah. Okay. So the pomegranate juice story is, I only realized kind of the significance of that story when I returned. So I will, I, I will definitely <clears throat> share that. So some of the kind of folk practices that are often, um, um, performed by both Haredi women and their their husbands involve things like, um, um, you know, uh, a Haredi, an ultra-Orthodox man during the last month of his wife's pregnancy will uh, be invited to open up the ark in the sanctuary as a way of kind of welcoming the opening of her womb. And in that um, you know, if you follow that metaphor all the way through, then the fetus inside her womb is akin to the Torah scrolls inside her ark, inside the ark, which I think only further, you know, one of the cases I make is that books, you know, the books of the Torah scroll are essentially, you know, on equal ground to the babies that the women are creating. Um, and that's something we don't often talk about. But um, so that's one practice. Another is uh, once I accompanied a woman who was returning from an ultrasound examination late in her pregnancy, and uh, the the ultrasound technician said the fetus was flipped. It was um, not head down. It was feet down, and that would be a problem for giving birth. And so they really wanted the fetus to flip. And so she told me that there was one practice. They could go to some special springs up up north in Israel where she could drink the water from the springs in a certain way. We didn't go there. And so I, I kind of, I don't have the details of that particular ritual. But what we did do instead is we walked back to her apartment and she frantically started um, flipping all the books on her shelves so that they were right side up. And some of them were upside down. And These are uh, sacred books, right, sacred books, right. Um, that had been kind of just put back on the shelf in a kind of messy way. And she made sure to flip them. And she told me that the hope was that in flipping the books, she would flip the fetus again, creating this parallel between books and the fetus. And um, so, so that was another one, the pomegranate juice one. Um, so when I entered the field, I had been married for three years uh, initially. By the time I left, it was five years. And I 
I did not have any children and everybody knew that I was pursuing this higher degree. This was very strange to them. Uh, they, some of them might've thought I was having trouble getting pregnant, but they were maybe too polite. Others thought I was just bizarre for not having children when I first got married. Uh, and it was a way it, it, it functioned. My not having children ended up creating some, some kind of a, um, uh, just a, a barrier between us because it was uh, a way that I wasn't like them in many ways uh, in, in, in a significant way. And so one woman who thought I was having trouble getting pregnant reached into her freezer as I was leaving the interview that we, we had just shared so many. I mean, we had spoken for hours and she had told me about, you know, all of her pregnancies and told me things that she didn't tell anybody else before. And she reached into her freezer and got out this little bag of, of juice. It had a couple ounce, maybe an ounce or two of pomegranate juice in it. And she said it was pomegranate juice that had been squeezed that, from pomegranates that had hung in the sukkah, the, the ritual booths um, for the holiday of Sukkot um, that had hung in the Sukkot of prominent rabbis in Jerusalem. And that the juice, you know, had been squeezed from the pomegranate. Um, I, I'm now, now that I'm thinking about this story, I'm thinking how hard it must have been to squeeze all that. I mean, this wasn't like concentrated pomegranate juice that you buy in the store. This was like the real deal. And I can imagine what they did. They must have opened. Getting those seeds out is really hard, right? So, um, but anyway, so she she said how important this juice is. And she said every time before she wants to get pregnant, she drinks some of this juice and this helps her. And then she gets pregnant without a problem. This is kind of her fertility technology. And so she gave me one of these ounces. I mean, it, it was a big deal that she gave me one of these. And considering how hard she or somebody had worked to get this juice and the, and, and what it meant to her. Um, and she gave me the juice and she said, I hope it works for you too. It will. <clears throat> and I went home and we, we were about a year into uh, our living in Jerusalem at the time. And uh, the juice, I put it in the freezer. I put it in the back of the freezer in our apartment in Jerusalem. Uh, I was definitely not ready to have a child. And I, we put it in the back and I tried to forget about it. And then right before we moved, uh, we had, you know, cleaned out the freezer. We're ready to go back to New York. And there is this bag of pomegranate juice. And I stared at it for a good long time. And I thought, well... I might be ready to get pregnant soon. So should I take it now? But if I take it, am I, have I kind of, you know, in the old anthropological phrasing, have I gone native in, in some, you know, really cross boundary way that will compromise any findings that I conclude from this research? Um, you know, what does it say about me as a researcher to drink the juice? But what if I don't drink it and then I can't ever get pregnant? And then <laughs> what, what I kind of, I was overwhelmed with this sense of what do I do here? And what does it say about me either way that I go? And what am I saying about myself? What am I saying about my, the 
folks who let me into their lives for two years? Do I have I believed everything that they said? Do I buy into what they said? You know, it's it kind of this one, this tiny bag of pomegranate juice encapsulated all of my concerns about being an anthropologist in the field. And I um I was just oh, overtaken with concern. So I drank it, um, kind of holding my nose and hoping that it didn't work uh too soon. And um you know, but I've thought a lot about that moment since then. I've thought a lot about as I've kind of gone through my own um, reproductive experiences, uh, I've thought a lot about um, the the women who opened up to me, the doc, the medical experience, uh, you know, what kind of authorities did I turn to? I, I just, I've ended up really thinking a lot more about them through each of my um my pregnancies. And uh, I think that, you know, a careful reader of my book will notice the kind of layers that developed during each pregnancy. Um, because I, I definitely, I think my analysis changed as I experienced different things and thought about the women in different ways, kind of returning to this sense of a real subjective researcher um, and an analysis being subjective. So, yeah, yeah. That's the pomegranate story. <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful story, and I I, I love it as a as a, uh, a sociologist who is also very concerned about uh, the boundaries between the researcher and the people that are being studied. You know, and and at, and at the same time. Uh, you know, fully aware that the boundaries are never so neat. Uh, you know, there, there's always some kind of um, uh, uh, spillage between, uh, uh, you know, or across the boundary, this uh, uh, imagined boundary. Um, uh, and I, previously you mentioned about the uh, pregnancy books, books that were written by uh, Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox men or women for other uh, ultra-Orthodox women. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the kinds of messages that these books contain and how did the ultra-Orthodox women you spoke to uh, use these books in order to help their reproductive agency? Great. Yeah. So um, these books I collected while I was in the field. There are two books uh, primarily that most women told me about. So I would ask women when I was talking to them, you know, did, did you use any pregnancy advice books? And they would say, well, there's this book and this book. And they would show me the books on their shelf. Uh, and uh, there were two books in particular, a book called Beshatova, which means In a Good Hour. And it's written by a, 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 a husband, wife, doctor, nurse team uh, who are Orthodox themselves and who have written this book. It was initially written in English and then translated to Hebrew. And uh, it's a very popular book among the women that I spoke to. Uh, that book is mostly uh, combining medical and Jewish legal advice around pregnancy. And so one kind of prime example is, um, do you need to fast on a fast day or should a pregnant woman fast on a fast day? And for a chap that kind of gets its own chapter in, in the book. And there they present kind of side by side medical and religious guidance for whether a woman should fast during pregnancy. The overall message of the book is that the medical field and the rabbinic field can work side by side. 
And in oftentimes they match up. So they bring kind of religious texts to um, uh, validate or, or um, echo medical findings, which is always really fun. You know, people love seeing that. It's kind of this, look, the rabbis were right 2000 years ago about the develop, about fetal development kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, they do a lot of that. There are um, certifications at the beginning of the book, these letters that kind of approve of the book from both medical authorities and rabbinic authorities. That's the overall message. And the message it sends to women is, um, look, you should be going by both of these, that you can't just uh, listen to your rabbi and you can't just listen to the doctors, but instead you need to be listening to both. And that echoes a lot of the uh, way that medical care is presented for ultra-Orthodox women as well in Israel. So that's book number one. That's Beshatova. The second book is a book called Hachana Ruchanit Leleda, which means a spiritual preparation for labor. And that book is a more of an anthology written by a number uh, with essays submitted from doulas and rebbitzins, rabbis' wives, uh, some rabbis themselves, about how to spiritually prepare yourself for labor and how to treat labor as an opportunity for connection with God primarily. Uh, and so it's a lot of the kind of themes that I mentioned earlier. Now, so what's fast, so so I collected these books while I was in Israel. I didn't look at them until years later uh, when I had a chance to really delve into them. And what's fascinating about them is that they contain a lot of the themes that women talked about during uh, you know, as as informing their reproductive authority, this kind of ability to talk both to doctors and to rabbis and know what both and and how to maneuver through that complicated web of relationships, and the fact that pregnancy and labor are an opportunity to connect with God, and therefore, you know, medical authorities shouldn't be given too much too much control, and rabbis shouldn't be listened to for everything. That's also within that book. So the themes that the that I realize the women had been talking to me about were all contained within these books. So then I returned to the data and realized that when I asked women about these books, you know, I would say, okay, did you look at any books? And they'd say, yeah, there are these books. And I would say, well, what advice is in them? Oh, I don't know. Nothing really important. (laughs) Which, which, it just kind of needed that, you know, the research needed to breathe for a few years in order for me to realize, in order for me to really think about what was going on there and how could they have these books on their shelves. And remember, their shelves are filled with sacred books. So kind of next to their sacred books are these two very colorful books with pictures of babies on them and, you know, entirely out of character for the rest of their bookshelves. And, um, and in some ways inappropriate for their children to see on their on the shelves also. So um, uh, so it, it was baffling to me why they would have the books on their shelves, they would acknowledge that they existed, but then claim they got nothing from them. Um, and what I thought a lot about was the fact that, um, you know, if they said they got information from the books it would be validating that mode of learning, that mode of knowledge, of authority, that the it would validate and justify the idea that knowledge comes from books, which is what rabbinic authority is based on, right? That knowledge comes from 
book knowledge, that authority comes from book knowledge. And the women that I was speaking to, that I spoke to, um, you know, were, were validating a different kind of knowledge and, uh, uh, and, and talking about embodied knowledge and experiential knowledge uh, and reproductive knowledge as that which provided them with authority and agency. So uh, I realized that what they were doing in keeping the books on their shelves was kind of playing this game of, oh, look, I have books too. And these books attest to the fact that I've had babies, right? So fine, I'll play your game. Like we all recognize books are valuable. So I'll show off my books because my books validate the fact that I've had babies, which places me in a very, um, in very high esteem in the ultra-Orthodox world, right? But I'm not going to give the books too much credit because instead I'm going to prioritize embodied knowledge. So even if they did learn something from the books, which I think many of them did, they wouldn't talk about it because instead they would talk, they wanted to prioritize that embodied knowledge. They wanted to prioritize the experiences that they had had uh, and the theological connections that they had drawn uh, instead of prioritizing the book knowledge. Wow, that's really fascinating. Um, and uh, you talk about how the ultra-Orthodox women approach abortions and uh, and uh, what you – could you tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of whether ultra-Orthodox women actually had abortions and what were some of the reasons that would justify um, uh, having an abortion? Yeah, so none of the women I spoke to <clears throat> told me about an abortion they had had. They talked to me about uh, friends who they knew had abortions, and we talked in uh, more theoretical terms of when you might one might consider an abortion. And uh, two main um, sort of um, uh, it um, uh, elements came up for them. One is uh, if the fetus is diagnosed with a severe abnormality that precludes um, life uh, and and therefore means that this baby might live for a very short period of time or may not even make it to the birth, uh, then they would, um, they know which rabbis to go to that would allow them to get an abortion. And, or if they found out that their health was in serious danger um, from continuing the pregnancy, then they'd know which rabbis to go to. So if there was a, um, a significant medical problem, diagnosis, they know which rabbis to go to, the rabbis would give permission for an abortion. And they, these explicitly, whereas other, other reproductive decisions they would make without consulting with rabbis, these, they really felt they needed to consult with rabbis on partially because, you know, the whole, um, you know, it's not just that Haredi women are pregnant. It's that Haredi women have babies. So if they end up with a pregnancy that that will not result in a baby, they don't want to be, you know, quote unquote, blamed for that, right? They don't want the responsibility for that kind of decision. So they, um, you know, export it to the rabbis and they say the rabbis will get to make this decision and that's fine. So that's kind of one class of abortions that happen in the Haredi community. Uh, and these, you know, I heard about these from doctors, from women themselves, uh, from social workers that I spoke to. So those are, are um, common and, and tragic and, um, you know, that's generally the practice. 
Then there's a second uh, area of pregnancy terminations that are considered and happen, and that's for financial reasons. Um, Haredim uh, live, uh, ultra a lot of ultra-Orthodox Jews live below the poverty line in in Jerusalem, uh, and their high fertility rates are constantly in tension with um, their ability to move above the poverty line. Um, Israel, for a long time, has provided subsidies to ultra-Orthodox families to uh, have more children because their fertility rate uh, in many ways sustains a demographic majority for Jews in Israel. And so uh, people, you know, Israel has wanted ultra-Orthodox Jewish women to continue having a lot of babies, but they also have to then contend with um, uh, really poor financial uh, situations. And at the same time, ultra-Orthodox women, as I mentioned before, are those who are making money for their families. Although more and more ultra-Orthodox men in Jerusalem in particular are moving out of the full-time, mar- the kolel, the full-time married yeshiva system, um, for the women I spoke to, their husbands were still involved in the kolel. Uh, and so, um, so they were keenly aware of the financial pressures that were on them. And so many of the women said, you know, they would either go on birth control if they couldn't afford another pregnancy, but if they found themselves pregnant and they couldn't afford it, then they would go to an organization called um, Efrat, which I spent a year um, uh, volunteering and observing in Efrat. And Efrat is an anti-abortion organization. They don't call themselves anti-abortion. They call themselves pro-woman. But they um, provide financial support to women who are um, who don't terminate their pregnancies, even though they are considering terminating their pregnancies. So um, there's a whole lot of paperwork that has to go on so that a woman has to prove that she's considering terminating her pregnancy, but then doesn't actually terminate it. And then she gets financial support. And um, when I was working with Efrat, uh, you know, what was revealed was that a lot of ultra-Orthodox women turn to Efrat for financial support. And Efrat recognizes that the vast majority of them may not actually consider, I mean, actually go through with an abortion whether or not they get financial support. Um, But there is a significant number of them that uh, are convinced not to um, have an abortion because of the financial support that they provide. Uh, And a lot of women spoke to me about the fact that the financial pressures are significant enough that they would lead to them terminating a pregnancy very early on in the pregnancy. So, you know, in the first few weeks, they would terminate a pregnancy, whereas those for fetal deformities are coming much later. So, you know, the thing about those early terminations is you don't often know that they're, um, that they've happened. So they're able to, to, women are able to keep them much more kind of under wraps. Right. Well, this all gives us uh, so much to think about. Uh, before we let you go, I, I want to ask you about what project you're working on now, uh, if there's any uh, new project that you're currently involved in. Yeah. So I, I've i been following this thread of religious authority into a new project. I've been looking at um, Orthodox, um, I guess, left-wing Orthodox um women who are being ordained as rabbis within orthodoxy. 
And so in in 2016, I started this research in Israel uh, uh, with some help of a few grants. And um, then the following year, I was able to continue it um, in America, in North America. And so I've been traveling around, well, um, I was traveling around for a while before the pandemic, um, interviewing, observing, watching how these women are functioning in their synagogues, what it means to have for them to have a more kind of formal religious authority uh, and what that looks like in the Orthodox setting as a woman. Well, that sounds fascinating. Uh, Thank you so much, Michal, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you for having me, Zalman. It's been so great chatting with you. Terrific. Uh, That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.